Welcome to the Dialogue Book Review podcast. I'm here today with Margaret Olson Hemming, who is the editor of Exponent 2. Now, the spring issue of Dialogue, spring 2020, is a special issue edited by the editors of Exponent 2. So, Margaret is here today to talk to us about the organization and this special issue. Margaret, welcome. Thank you. Can you tell us a little bit about the organization, its history, and what it does now? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So Exponent 2 was founded in 1974, and Dialogue actually played a role in its founding. There was a group of women in Boston, Mormon women, who were uh, looking at second wave feminism and getting together in these groups and talking about how does this affect us as Mormon women. They did some work together, uh, created a Beginner's Boston book, and were doing some writing and publishing, and were invited to edit, guest edit, an issue of Dialogue. And so Claudia Bushman and Laurel Thatcher Ulrich did the famous pink issue of Dialogue. And it was soon after that that they decided, we want to keep publishing and keep sharing Mormon women's voices. And they founded Exponent 2 as a quarterly publication for Mormon feminists. My parents are not particularly uh, strong feminists, but they actually were friends with Claudia. They had the magazine's subscription that we always had in our home. So I read it quite a bit as a kid, and uh, I really value the magazine. Oh, I love that. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. Laurel has told me that they didn't really expect it to last when when they first started. And so those early issues were printed on this really cheap sort of newsprint paper and consequently, there aren't very many of them left. So very few people have those early issues. But I have a set, and it is wonderful to go back and read those issues and read about what these incredible women were thinking and how they are processing those those issues 45 years ago and how what's changed and what's stayed the same through the years. And what brought you to the organization? I grew up in a devout but open-minded Mormon family. And so I knew about Dialogue and Exponent 2 when I was growing up. My mother always, I grew up in Michigan, so my mother frequently attended Midwest Pilgrims. And then I married into a family that is very supportive of Dialogue and and Exponent 2. And my sister-in-law started inviting me to go to the retreats. Right around that time, Amy Hickman moved into my ward in Baltimore We became friends, and she became the editor in 2009. That's when I joined the staff. Can you tell me um, what else the organization does? With the resurgence of Mormon feminism in sort of 2009, 2010, and the early 2000s, so Exponent 2 came back into print publication and also expanded. I believe it was 2005 was the start of the blog. We have one to two posts on the blog every day. We have a yearly retreat that has been happening since, I believe, the early 1970s, even before the magazine started publishing. And we have women there who have gone to every single retreat since then. So that's kind of this in-person gathering of a lot of history and a lot of new people every year. It's kind of an extraordinary event. And then in the last few years, really moved into social media as well and having these conversations in real time um, with women across the the world, really sharing their experiences and and what it's like to be a Mormon feminist. Can you tell us about the uh, special issue? What's going to be in it? 
what are you looking forward to people reading? It was very important to us that we capture the wide variety of Mormon women's experiences with power in this issue. The theme is Mormon women claiming power. And we wanted to make sure that we weren't limiting ourselves to one form of power or traditional structures of power that you usually think of in the workplace or hierarchy, because so often women have been excluded from those types of power. And we wanted to also be sensitive to the intersections of identity with women that are even more formally excluded from formal power. So we wanted to be creative in thinking about how Mormon women are claiming power. Uh, Some of the articles that I'm really excited about, Brittany Romanello has an essay called Multiculturalism as Resistance, Latina Migrants Navigate U.S. Mormon Spaces, which she writes about how Latina immigrants are experiencing power in the United States. There is a personal essay about the experience of claiming a position in a baby's blessing, what it's like to be a mother of a baby who is told that holding or touching her child while the baby is being blessed will invalidate that blessing in the records of the church. There's essays by Laurel Thatcher Ulrich and Claudia Bushman discussing the history of Exponent 2 and dialogue and this long relationship that they've had. Laurel writes about Leonard Arrington and the role that he played in encouraging the founding mothers of Exponent 2 to sort of claim a space for themselves. And Claudia writes about her experience in editing The Pink Issue. We have this pretty extraordinary roundtable interview with Mormon women who have been ordained in some way. That includes a couple of women who grew up Mormon and have since become pastors for other churches, women who have grown up Mormon and stayed active, but also participate in religious practices in some other form. So one of them is a teacher at the National Cathedral School in Washington, D.C., and she leads services and helps the girls there lead services. And then one of the women has been a full-time pastor and recently joined the church and had to leave her career as a pastor in order to be baptized. I've never quite seen anything like it, this conversation of Mormon women talking about what it feels like to feel that call from God to be ordained and the different paths that they've had with that call. That's fascinating. I couldn't be happier with that piece. We have some great fiction. There's one, The Garden of Babel, about Heavenly Mother and agency and what it's like to choose to be vulnerable, what power comes from that. And of course, you have the book reviews, which you'll be discussing with Hannah Pritchett, the book review editor. And then the the last two pieces I wanted to mention, Lita Little Giddens, who's one of my favorite artists, wrote about our cover artist, Michelle Franzoni Thorley. These are two women who I just absolutely love, and the way they interact is so inspiring to me talking about what it's like to be Mormon women artists of color. 
And then Amber Richardson has a From the Pulpit piece that is about sexual assault and reclaiming spiritual power post-sexual assault and what that looks like for women in scripture. Now, poetry has always been a big part of Exponent. I always remember the old issues and, and yes. often pages of poetry. <laughs> That's right. I would really encourage the readers to read the poetry and the dialogue issue as it's laid out because our editor did this really amazing job of putting together a storyline arc with each poem written by different people, but they go in order, I guess is the only way to describe it. And they're really exploring Mormon feminist theology through poetry. Wow. And let me just say the names, Marilyn Bushman Carlton, Emily Adams, Mindy Ivy Harrison, Carolyn Pearson, Holly Walker, Allison Spikes, Teresa Wellborn, Twyla Nui, and Melanie Cannon. That's it. I'm really excited for people to read this issue. So thanks for having me on. Well, thanks so much for being with us. Welcome back to the Dialogue Book Report. Today we are talking about the spring 2020 issue of Dialogue. And I'm joined by one of the editors of that issue, Hannah Pritchett. Hello, Hannah. Hi there. For her day job, Hannah Pritchett talks to people and makes color-coded spreadsheets as a manager at a tech company. On the side, she's an avid reader and book reviewer for Publishers Weekly. She lives with her husband and son in Oakland, California. And Ashley May Hoyland, who is known usually as Ash May, whose book is reviewed in that issue, Ash May received her BFA in painting and an MFA in creative writing from Brigham Young University. She runs a small business creating and selling paintings and teaches writing courses at mindtotell.com. She is the author of two memoirs, 100 Birds Taught Me to Fly in 2016 and A New Constellation in 2019, both of which were AML Creative Nonfiction Award finalists. She also wrote several children's books, including The Lost Party and Unto Us a Child is Born. She's also the illustrator of Rachel Hunt Steenblick's poetry collections, Mother's Milk, and I Gave Her a Name. She lives in Provo, Utah, with her three children and her husband. Ashmay, hello. Hello. Hannah, let's start with you. Hannah is one of the editors of this special issue of Dialogue. Can you tell us a little bit about the process of editing the book reviews in particular? Sure. So I haven't been closely involved in pulling together book reviews for The Exponent before, so I came at this with a little bit of fresh eyes. I should acknowledge that I had a partner in crime here, Tanya Lyon, who wasn't able to join us today, but this was very much a collaboration between the two of us. And as we started to talk about it, we realized we wanted to do something, you know, we kind of had a few suggestions of what books might we be able to review. And no offense to these books, they're all excellent books. But when I saw the list, it was kind of that same 10 people effect, you know, of your home ward, where it's always the same 10 people cycling through the callings or volunteering for things. And again, those 10 people are wonderful. And those books are wonderful. But we thought these books have gotten a lot of credit already in places like Dialogue and in other places where Mormons are paying attention to arts and letters. So we wanted to do something that was kind of slightly more creative and expanding the span a little bit of the types of books that would get treatment in Dialogue. Additionally, we wanted, you know, this is a very special issue of Dialogue. And so we wanted the book review section itself to have a little bit of a theme and to tie to the theme of the issue, which is women in power, and kind of explore some of the questions of how do women claim power? What does that mean for women in their lives? And like, how do we even think about women in power when power is often something that is so coded masculine? So these ideas kind of came together in a thread of we thought it would be really fun to do almost a like genre review of books primarily written by women for women within the Mormon tradition and try to choose books that address some of the themes of women in power, but that also spanned places, you know, places and types of literature that were would be unexpected to see in the pages of dialogue. So Ashmay, your book is not among them for that note. We kind of saved your book review as the capstone piece to tie a lot of these threads together. And I think we'll talk later about some of that. But we, we very deliberately wanted to pull in things like young adult fiction, for example, which is often written by women for teenage girls and often even for adult women. 
um, and things like romance novels and things that are considered kind of women's literature and regarded as less literary, but that really tackle deeply some of the themes about women and how they live their lives and kind of help women explore their stories. I, I just am so excited by everything you just said. <laughs> it's, thank it you was, for doing the work you're doing. It was it was a super fun process, I got to say. And my intro here is a little snarky of I make color-coded spreadsheets for my work, but never fear. I did have a color-coded spreadsheet to pull this issue together. Um, and we made a spreadsheet of kind of what are all the genres that we, we might want to address. And then between Tanya and I, we kind of thought about who do we know or who could we get in touch with that reads in that genre and would be an excited reviewer for that. So we were striving both for kind of diversity of the types of books we addressed and then as much as possible diversity in who the reviewers were. We made a special effort not to just reach out to people who had kind of reviewed books for dialogue before or were like the classic reviewers for The Exponent mm -hmm. and really tried to search our networks for like, who are folks that are just passionate about this type of book and might have something interesting to say about it. I should note that there were a couple gaps, as it were, in our span. In my color-coded spreadsheet, we had someone for memoir and someone for poetry. And both of those people, unfortunately, were not able to complete the reviews in time because of other life commitments that came up. So it's not as perfectly complete as we wanted it to be, but I think it still is a really kind of interesting span of books from different types of genres. And again, not the sort of thing that you would always see in dialogue, which we were excited about. And I love that you included these young adult books. There's so many um, great young adult authors, LDS authors right now, that are really leading the field. And looking at your list, the one I know the most is Julie Berry, who wrote the novel Lovely War. And she is just an amazing author. She had a book a couple of years ago called The Passion of Dulce about uh, mystics, uh, a young woman who was a mystic in the 13th century in Provence. It resulted in this crusade where the Northern French army and the Catholic Church came down and, and slaughtered a lot of the people there. She tells the story from the uh, viewpoint of this young mystic who spoke with God. And it's just a, an amazing novel. She really tackles some fascinating themes because The Lovely War is a World War One story ensconced within the framing of the Greek gods having a debate about something. And it's Aphrodite telling the story of this World War One couple as a way to navigate tensions between the Greek gods, which I just thought was a fascinating combination of like themes, kind of pulling the myth in with the history to tell this story was a really interesting <clears throat> packaging for it. Okay. Is there anything else you want to say about this issue? Yeah, I think just the, I'm sure this will come up as we talk about your book, Ashmay too. We kind of wrote an introduction trying to pull a lot of this together. And a theme that I noticed coming out of all the reviews, and this is something I expected to find a little bit from my own reading, but tackling the theme of women in power was very interesting because women taking power or exercising power often doesn't look like what we expect. So we kind of prompted many of the reviewers to look for those themes. And I thought it was really cool to see how those came out in some of the books because, you know, again, power is often a masculine coded activity. And we have certain images in our head of like, well, this is what someone powerful looks like, or this is what it looks like to exercise power. And it often looks like the modes of control and authority and some degree of bossiness. And, you know, kind of our hypothesis was that like telling their stories is a way that women claim power in their lives and being authentic to themselves and treating their stories as worthy of respect. So I, I thought it was fascinating to see those themes come out in the books, both in kind of, you know, the YA fiction of how these young women characters in most cases learn to kind of dig deep for what their own power is and how to exercise that in their lives as well as then even just the review of recent Mormon women's history is a story of how we've learned to understand the power that Mormon women have in their lives and how that, that looks different than the power that a bishop has, but that still is a type of power and it's a type of agency. And so I really, really enjoyed seeing those themes coming out of all these books of how LDS women exercise their power and agency in their daily lives and what that, how that doesn't always look like what we expect it to look like. But we should have our eyes open to what that looks like and be able to respect the ways that, you know, the ways that both these kind of real life and fictional women are dealing with it. All right. Thank you very much. Let's turn to Ashmay. So Ashmay has 
Two books that have come out in the last few years, 100 Birds Hopping to Fly, which came out in 2016 through the Maxwell Institute, and A New Constellation, which came out in 2019 through By Common Consent Press. And both of them are a mixture of Ashmay's writings and paintings. Where did you first get the desire to write and paint? I feel like it's always been my mode of understanding the world and processing. Like, I think I could write about something far before I could eloquently speak about it. Um, and I think I was just always drawn to, I mean, as young as I can remember, I, like in kindergarten, telling people that when I grow up, I want to write and illustrate my own books. I feel really, really fortunate that that is actually something that has come to pass. Um, kind of envious of that. You know what you want to do with your life. I weirdly did. That's a gift. Yeah, it, it does feel like a gift, honestly. Even at a very young age, it just felt like writing something opened up another dimension of understanding or surprise at what I was both capable of thinking through, of seeing, of noticing, of describing. I think as an artist, it's kind of a similar thing. I think it's both language and artistic material, whatever that is, paint or pencil. It allows for so much play and it can start with initially very low stakes because it's often in a sketchbook or like a notebook that nobody else is going to see. And for me, that just, it feels like a very comfortable world to enter and be a part of. We're going to talk a lot about your writing, but I want to make sure we don't skip over your art. I was really interested about how many guerrilla art projects that you seem to be doing. Things where you just went in public, you know, without permission sometimes and just put a piece of art in a public space and then watch to see how the public interacted with that. Can you tell us a little bit why that kind of art interests you? <laughs> sure. First and foremost, I feel completely delighted by it. Like it does bring me a lot of joy to do that. And I was just telling my husband today, so we're recording this, if you hear it later, in the midst of the coronavirus outbreak. The economy is in shambles. Everything is kind of a mess. Um, and I was telling my husband, I feel like in some ways I was born for this time because the things that I most want to create are not actually very profitable. And in a, like a true market economy, nobody actually, one, has time and two, like necessarily wants to purchase. I don't necessarily excel at making work that is super purchasable, but I think there's something so exciting about slanting into a place and asking people just to question reality and to question routine and what is normal. And I think above all, just doing things that bring a little bit of joy and delight to people. Can you tell the story about the seed packets? Oh, yeah. Um, that one, it was in college. It was at the time when they must have been switching the big library over all to digital. And so they would hand out at the library all these little cards from books, like the little back cards. Um, so I would just siphon away pocketfuls of those every time I would go to the library. And then I sewed them into little packets of wildflower seeds. And one day I had a few friends come and help me. We pasted them really huge on this old wall in the shape of the word grow. And then we just put a little sign that said, take a packet of seeds. And then beneath it, we had a little piece of paper so people could write what they were going to do with the seeds. And in the midst of putting that project up, the cops came and stopped us and said like, what is happening? What is going on? <laughs> and luckily, the people that owned the building said, oh, it's fine. We don't care if she does this. Like, I actually didn't ask permission. I should have, but I didn't even know anyone lived there. 
I think it's really beautiful to see the way that community comes together for projects like that, for things that honestly don't matter, really. And it makes me think of even just yesterday, my business partner and I, we hosted kind of an impromptu community prayer writing session. It was just a half an hour. Like nobody is necessarily making money from this. I'm not making money from this. It's in some ways hard to quantify the benefits of this, but 60 people showed up and it was just kind of an invitation that we'd posted, I guess, in kind of a gorilla-like way. And it was really beautiful to see like 60 people were at the ready to come and participate in this and be a part of community in a way that we don't always get to. Yeah, I guess that's my, my impetus. I'm loving hearing about this. And also the inner coronavirus person right now is going like, well, I hope those 60 people were on Zoom. Please tell oh, me yes. it was digital. Yeah, for sure, Zoom. <laughs> yes. No. For future listeners, they'll be like, what? what? Yeah, 60 <laughs> people. That sounds wonderful. And my heart is like, what? No, no, they were definitely on Zoom, which I think is exciting that we live in a time where we can create still these sort of guerrilla projects that don't even necessarily have to be physical, that reach across a greater space. Not to make everything about this a COVID-19 theme, but I have been just to the point of creation and reaching across space. I mentioned, you know, I mentioned I'm a very passionate and voracious reader. I have been my whole life. I tend to think of that as my primary creative exercise. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm a happy and engaged audience member and I am like a fantastic reader and I'm not interested in creating myself, but I have felt very grateful for that and the work of all the creators not just today, but also over all time who have left us with their words and the ability to read. And I'm watching all these people posting on Facebook of like, here's all the things that you can do when stuck at home in quarantine. And I'm like, why do you need a list? There's a bookshelf. <laughs> like, what do you mean all the things you can do? Like, it's a, it's a time to read and engage deeply with art and creativity and the things that, you know, folks like yourself, Ash, may have made for us. So yeah, well, and I think there is this really beautiful communion between writers and readers that happens where once you create something and put it out into the world, what that person on the receiving end does with it is in many ways just as creative and life-giving to that form as the person who actually made it. So yes, the work doesn't mean anything without the people that are participating with it and giving it life beyond. And a review issue, Meg Conley's essay about Ashmay's book, I think is a piece of art on its own. It really is. Book reviews can be dry and just summaries or whatever, but Meg is herself a writer and it shines through. And, you know, she is, she is using her creative gifts to engage with Ash May's creative gifts. Oh, man. And I would yeah. say both the book and the review essay are worth reading as standalone pieces. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Meg as a writer is such a beautiful, thoughtful thinker. Absolutely. So clearly a major theme is your search for the divine feminine, uh, Heavenly Mother in Mormon parlance. When did that search become important to you? I guess Rachel Hunt and I go back quite a long time. And it wasn't until college when I did meet Rachel. She was the first one 13 years ago that even introduced the concept to me. And she wasn't at that time writing poems or anything. She was just talking about it as a friend. And the more I started to think about it, the more I was shocked that I hadn't ever thought about it. Both my parents are well, my dad was inactive and came back to the church much later. And then my mom is a convert from Catholic background. And so a lot of my upbringing was not very traditional. And so I wasn't super ensconced in either. We were kind of doing what we were doing as a non-traditional family. But I was shocked when I heard Rachel speak about it to think like, oh, that has never even crossed my mind. <laughs> that seems 
pretty problematic. And I think in many ways at that time, I was pretty invisible to myself and my own power and that I wasn't even willing to consider that I might be capable of more sovereignty than I had at the time. And so the more that I've come into my own, to myself and to love and believe that my own story is worth telling, which has truly been a process of years. It's not something that happened overnight and not just a process, but a lot of really intentional work, both of my own, of mentors who have helped me to get there, of editors who have helped me to get there. And I think the more that I get into it, the less I feel interested in defining a specific heavenly mother and the more interested I am in looking at a divine feminine as a whole. So at this point, I would say I see my connection to a divine feminine, maybe even more as like an understanding of the earth, an understanding of my own ability to be sovereign and to hold really important spiritual truths and powers of my own accord. And not that I know better than anyone or I'm wiser than anyone, but really taking on that journey for myself has kind of in tandem helped me to understand a divine feminine. And if that is a specific heavenly mother for people, I think that's useful. If it is just a more abstract understanding, I think that's also really useful. Yeah, I love the, the different metaphors you used, often speaking of the wings of the divine feminine, protecting people. I like in the second book, when you talked about your illness, you said that she set to work weaving an earthly net to catch me. She's the bird whose wing I'm under. She has not told me what I should learn here, has not asked me for obedience in exchange for my love. She sits quietly with me, holds me warm and close until the storm passes. I should say, I feel quite resistant, actually, to this insistence that we seem to have. Like once Heavenly Mother is an idea and a potential part of our theology, I feel like we are pretty quick to define that into something very tangible, which makes sense because we are all human beings who don't always like to deal in the abstract. But I do feel resistant to saying this is what she looks like, and this is exactly what she does, and this is who she is. Because I think, bottom line, we don't know that. And I think that's one of the most beautiful things about it and about exploring that theology is not shutting down curiosity with definitive answers, but instead opening up a doorway and saying, this is a possibility. What does it mean to you? And I love those themes that you had in the book about getting beyond a desire to know this or have a certainty of this and instead welcoming the uncertainty and the questioning and the curiosity. I liked your take on the Gospel of Mark, where the friends of the man with palsy broke open the, the roof and lowered him down. And that's not the polite way to go about it. There's a better way to go about it. There's a more correct way of going about it, waiting in line with everybody else. But the Savior didn't judge these people, didn't call them out for this, but just recognized their faith and worked with them from there. And that seems to be a major theme of your work is that here's these people coming with these different situations and different challenges, and it's not my job to judge them or to judge myself based on what challenges I have, but just to kind of take the wonder of that moment. Yeah, I kind of think of it, and maybe this comes from my background as a poet, but we, we've all read good poems and bad poems. 
And I feel like a bad poem is something that leads you through it and you know exactly where you're going to end up. And so when you get to the end, there's no surprise and there's no trust in what you are able to do as a reader. And I sometimes feel like we've done that same disservice to divine beings and setting them up almost as a bad poem. And to say, we know what this is going to lead to. We know what this looks like. Rather than trusting ourselves as spiritual beings to say, we are smart and capable and complex and allow us to end up at an ending that surprises us every time. To the point of your metaphors too, Ashley, it really strikes me that you know, many of the metaphors throughout the scriptures for the Lord are coded feminine as well and have those same images of gathering like a hen gathers the chicks under her wings and whatnot. And I, I think that's to that same point of like some of these feminine imageries are woven throughout the scriptures in ways that A, we wouldn't necessarily notice unless we were looking for it, but B, certainly don't fit into strict binaries and expectations and like, you know, the poem taking you where you expect it to go if you're really looking for it. So, yeah, you know, I love the idea that the things are out there for our exploration and they may be, unex- you know, the same way that like women claiming power leads you, to, leads you to unexpected places. Like the answers we may find as we claim that power and as we claim that kind of spiritual exploration may be unexpected to us. Yeah, I think definitely. And I think um, that is why I feel so strongly about teaching. Primarily the writing classes that we teach are to women. And I think there's something so beautiful and so exciting to me about women claiming what it is that they see in their immediate world. I'd like to read from the closing paragraphs of Meg Conley's review, and then I'd like to hear your reaction to that. She says, There are no answers in 100 Birds Taught Me to Fly. There is no grandstanding over doctoral divides or exhibition via erudite ruminations. Because of this, it's been called, by men mostly, simple and sweet. A truly good effort. It can be difficult to hear the faint praise over the heavy pats on Hoyland's head. I suppose after decades of fine safe crossing with cross-references, Hoyland's pietism amid Play-Doh might feel a bit messy. 100 Birds teaches us to look around where we stand, in the kitchen, in the office, on your front step, waiting outside our children's school, and ask, is God here? It's the question that founded Mormonism, asked in a way that will help revitalize Mormonism. The right questions cast light. Is God here? This quest as question illuminates and reveals a Mormonism that is more than follow and footnote. With 100 Birds talking to fly, Hoyland brushes the chalk off her hands, reaches out, and offers us Mormonism as a language of seeking, a halting tongue making holy sound. Meg is such a good writer. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, one, I love her writing. And two, I think it does make me so excited to hear, I think one of the main responses that I've heard to 100 Birds Taught Me to Fly, particularly when I was doing lots of events with it, is people said that it made them want to write their own stories. And that, to me, feels more exciting than anything, because when it comes down to it, like, my story is minute, and it is mine. And it would, if I'd written that book six months before, six months after, it would have been a totally different book. And that's, it's not the point. Like what the content is, is not the point. I think it's that impetus to, like Meg says, to look around and ask God, is that you? Are you here? Are you a part of this? Is there God in me? And then not just asking the question, but laying claim to, yes, it is. And it is because I say it is, and this is what I see, I think is such a valuable and needed thing for women to do. There have been many, many men that have been super kind and respectful about the book. But there have also been men, like there was, (laughs) when it first came out, 
it was on a blog, a man had commented and said, can you convince me why I as a man should read a book by a woman? Like by, and I think because he saw it, whoever it was, and I, first of all, I said, no, I won't convince you to read my book because it seems like a losing game from the start. <laughs> yeah. Like nobody's ever convinced me why I should read a book by a man. Um, but I think what he saw is like, oh, this is a domestic, like small story. And I think pushing back against that and saying it absolutely, absolutely isn't. And that there is so much power in these seemingly small stories. It needs to be done. It's a work that all of us need to be doing. Now, your first book covers your whole life. It goes back and forth. It's not a straight, direct memoir, but it's a rumination on your spirituality throughout your life. Mm-hmm. Your second book, A New Constellation, is about a much tighter amount of time. And I think it was written in a much shorter amount of time. Can you tell us about that? Sure. In December, a year ago, December, so about a year and a half ago, it was the final week of my husband's seven-year PhD. He was defending his dissertation. We were we didn't know what we were doing after we were living with a friend in his house as they were starting a business. I had three small kids. Finances were tight. And so there was a lot of stress going on. And so I did not pay attention to the fact that I had some really clear symptoms that I should have paid attention to, one of which was I had really bad double vision in one eye. And so I uh, went to the doctor, the eye doctor, like finally after I realized like, oh my gosh, this is maybe a problem when I almost like ran into another car on the road. So I went to the optometrist thinking that I was going to get a pair of eyeglasses and she was very astute and ended up sending me to the ER to get an MRI. And by the end of the day, I was diagnosed with MS or multiple sclerosis. And I should say that in my case, the disease has not been completely life altering. I've been really lucky in that I haven't had relapses and I'm on a good medication. I've been very healthy. But at the time, it was certainly not a diagnosis that I had anticipated in any way. Um, And it felt like a pretty big upheaval. And so I always joke that in the ER that day, they gave me a bunch of steroids because that's how they treat relapses. And I asked the nurse, like, are there any side effects of steroids? Because you get them every six hours for several days. And he said, no, no, I don't think there are. Like, there shouldn't be too many. But turns out steroids make it so you literally don't sleep for days. And it was right before Christmas. And I was like awake all night for days. Um, And I just knew that if I didn't start transcribing what it was that I was seeing, that it would be gone and that everything would feel different, even in a matter of a few weeks. It just felt like this moment of just wanting to catch something. Like when you see a sunset and you know it's going down and you think, if I don't describe this and put it in my mind right now, it will be gone. So I wrote it in, it's a short book. But I wrote it in the three weeks post-diagnosis. And in part, I wanted it to be part of the experiment. BCC Press was so wonderful. I came to them with this crazy idea. And I said, listen, could I get this book out sooner than later? And they said, sure, do what you need to do. Because part of the experiment that I wanted was to be able to read the book aloud and to have it enter the public kind of also in real time when things were happening currently. I think you were going to read a selection from the beginning of the book. Sure. It just starts with a short poem. Um, And I've read this aloud enough times that I shouldn't, I should have prefaced all of this that I cry all the time. 
and I do it without apology, but um, I've read this enough times that hopefully that will not happen and interrupt us. The world changes without warning. When my daughter finally crossed the monkey bars on her own, I thought the world would surely want to know the way she created her own momentum, the way her small hands gripped the blue metal bar, and when she was about to fall, the way she adjusted her weight hanging in the air like that, her whole body intent on finishing, the way for a moment I saw her hang with one hand and her strength surprised us both, but neither said a word, the way she set her feet back on the earth at the end and looked at me, and both of us knew she was not the same as she was one minute before. And then I'll just read the opening, quite short little pieces. This is everything and nothing, and everything and nothing. In a year or in 10 years, I may look back and see that my life did not change at all. Or it may be that everything shifts and my body, my life, will look drastically different than the way it looks now. The heart does not know what it can hold until it is given the thing it must carry. I did not know I would love my children or the ocean or the purple flowers that bloom in our front yard tree until they showed up for me, until I was asked to stoop down and take a piece of them into my heart. I imagine it is the same with things that are hard. I cannot dictate beforehand the ways they will contract and expand my universe until they show up at my front door unexpected. And then I will know they have traveled a long way to get here, that they have made plans to be here for this part of the journey, and that I must let them in. So if this is everything, okay. If it is nothing, okay. The closer I get to looking at the differences, the two ideas seem to be the exact same thing. And then just this next little section. I am looking at raw heartache in real time, however momentary. It feels important to give sadness credence and a space to be preserved. Like a slant of light that passed by so quickly, I had to reach out and hold on to write it down so I knew it really existed. So many people have and will suffer a great deal more than me. So many are better acquainted with the ache of the heart, the brokenness of pieces, the loss of what once was. In every hurt, there must exist some balm. Writing is mine. So, thank you. Thank you. And there's actually, there's one more reading that I'd, I'd like to ask. Yeah. Uh, this is the poem Diagnosis about when you first received your diagnosis. Yeah. Um, and I haven't read this poem in a while, so I will try. I feel like sometimes when I'm reading, I I always try and like read things before so I don't surprise myself in the midst of it. <laughs> so I will try not to surprise myself. Diagnosis. How long have I been sheathing and unsheathing things that matter to me? A close-fitting cover to protect something. The rainbow blanket I put. <laughs> Sorry. Um, the rainbow blanket I place around and under my sleeping baby each night. God. Sadness, a blade inside a cover for all of us, I think. We unsheath it and cut through the overgrowth to get to the meadow on the other side. <clears throat> and today... Sorry. I just, I forgot that I actually wrote this the very night. Um, that I got the diagnosis, which I guess that's what I get for not going back and ever reading my own books. Um, <laughs> and today I learned that even inside my brain, a micro unsheathing has been happening without my knowing, taking muscles from my right eye, my left hand, the cold spot on my cheek. I do not know how to command them to cover up again, those nerves, the nerve. 
I trust the, the work the body does, the hot tectonic shifting I can barely detect, breaking apart the only Pangea I ever knew, and trust it will rearrange itself into something of a new history, one that is mine to write. Thank you. I love the image of the breaking up of the Pangea and seeing what it will rearrange itself into. Yeah, my husband is a geologist, so I feel like I, <laughs> I hate to put everything through the lens of our current scenario since who knows when people will be listening to this podcast, but I really love that bit about change is coming and you don't, you know, your problem about the world changing and particularly the line about it's traveled a long way to get here. Yeah. Like, oh yes, that does feel like where we are right now, which is there's change happening all around us and we don't know what it's going to be like in the future, but how do we embrace what it is in the present, prepare for the future the best we can? Yeah. We yeah, don't know funny. how to tell our nerves to sheath themselves back <laughs> up. So how do you know? How do we deal with both a personal diagnosis and honestly, what feels like a diagnosis for our world right now? Yeah, I've posted a couple of pieces of this book recently on social media, and several people said, "Wow, you sure like you timed the coming out of your book at the right time." And I had to say, "Oh no, it actually came out a year ago." I'm really terrible at marketing, turns out. Um, but <laughs> you're just a prophetic marketer. <laughs> But I'm glad that it has, um, as I've been reading a little bit back through it, that it has been proven useful because again, and I think this is why I teach writing, why I want people to write, is the specific story is not actually important at all. Like the fact that I was diagnosed with MS and wrote something is not the point. The fact that I was lucky enough to be in a position to kind of write down what I was seeing and experiencing is the thing that matters. And that's nice because then it matters for everyone, not just my particular story. And there's a lovely resonance there for kind of the engagement between reader and writer of you may have been writing this, you know, you were writing this for something that was happening to you personally at the time. It feels very much like something that's happening to many of your readers today. Yeah. And kind of, you know, your creative past of a year ago can speak to your readers in the present and hopefully also many readers in the future. And they're going to kind of take that material and ingest it into their own life experiences, too. Thank you. Yeah, that's the hope. You mentioned before that uh, Mary Oliver, or you mentioned in the book that Mary Oliver and Annie Dillard were among your, your influences. How, how, how do you think they've influenced your writing? Oh, my goodness. I'm speaking of which there's like Mary Oliver sitting right next to me. <laughs> um, not not her, the book. <laughs> I feel like when I read both of them in high school, I guess I was always maybe a little bit of an odd duck at growing up. Like I always was thinking like, oh, I'm making this project and I'm going to bring it to school and have done it like everyone else. Like I followed the instructions and I would always show up to school and like, uh, what? <laughs> That's not at all what everyone else was doing. And I somehow was just like missing some of those things. And I remember reading Annie Dillard and Mary Oliver and thinking, oh, there is a place for me. Like there is some sort of kinship. And again, not that my writing is comparable to theirs. Speaking of like a feminine divine, they do feel like prophetesses to me. And I'm so grateful that they left words and kind of books of scripture that I can return to and that I can kind of ingest and make a part of my daily life. And I feel like, in particular, Mary Oliver, for so many people, just her her willingness to see the world and to slow down and take note of it has been incredibly influential. Just to see what 
big and beautiful things she made out of very small inconsequential moments is just really inspiring to your point about the feminine divine both authors are extremely engaged with questions of nature and the earth and not in the like sweeping geologic time sort of way but and they're like, I'm going to notice the small details of this patch of earth right in front of me and engage with it deeply to make something larger and more beautiful, which really does feel like, you know, that's often one of the themes running through about the feminine divine kind of appreciating mother nature. Mm-hmm. And I think both to your point are prophetesses with an eye to that. Yeah. And I think um, I should have said this, I think in the initial question about like, when did, did I start to understand a feminine divine? And I feel like, so it was five or six years ago. Um, my husband did some research in Sweden, and so we moved there for six months. And I had two tiny kids at the time, a three-year-old and a one-year-old. And basically, for those six months with those two small kids, and I, I didn't know anyone, I didn't really have friends, we basically just wandered around in the forests of Sweden, which is not a sad thing to have to do. Like It was pretty glorious. Um, but it was like this deep communing with nature in a way that I hadn't before. And just a way I felt so taken care of by like those specific words by mother nature that I will forever be changed by that experience because it was such a clear and distinct care from a divine source that I had not fully ever felt before that moment and that particular time. Ashley May, thank you so much for participating with us. Thank Is there anything you. Else you'd like to say before we stop? Oh my gosh. Um, no, sorry. I probably talked way more than I needed to, but I am very grateful. Don't apologize for telling your story. Yeah, sorry. I will not apologize for that. I did talk for a long time, but I'm very excited about these topics and you guys ask great questions. Thank you so much for having me be a part of this. It's really an honor to be able to talk with you both. Well, thank you. And, and I encourage everyone out there to find these two books and get them as quickly as possible. Hannah, thank you very much for participating today. And thank you for all your book reviews and all your editing work. Of course. It was a pleasure to do. It's a pleasure to join. I'd also encourage people to pick up the dialogue issue, read through the book reviews, explore some of the books that are there too. I think they're all, you know, Ashmays are a highlight, but everything reviewed there brings a really interesting perspective on kind of how women are living today and how they can claim their power. I'm so excited to get it. You, You sold it well. Thank you very much. The Dialogue Book Report is a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network. This includes such podcasts as The Mormon News Report, Face and a Half, Gospel Tangents, Worlds Fall In, and Beyond the Block. We are Dialogue.